This is the Shift Podcast. On the Shift Daily Podcast, today, social media expert Jesse Miller lets us know if we have digital consent. What is digital consent and why is it so important? What freedoms do we give up when we post on social media as well? Video game companies are pushing loot boxes in video games. What are loot boxes? It's kind of like pay five bucks, spin the wheel, get what you get. It's online gambling. And you don't get paid out in cash, but you get paid out in other video game add-ons. Handy Andy Barrar joins us on the Shift podcast to help us understand what's going on there. Are you okay with porta potties? Is also an amazing reason to listen to the podcast. Are you okay? Are you okay with fundraisers? Yeah, in theory, but like, what are we yeah. raising funds for? Well, that's that's up to the internet nine times out of ten. GoFundMe mm-hmm. is a place where you get amazing stuff like Elijah Petskalny, man who biked from Saskatchewan to BC to raise awareness for the opioid crisis. And then you also had a guy who raised $200,000 to make a tuna salad sandwich. That actually mm-hmm. happened. So mm-hmm. context. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, fundraisers are great as long as they're kind and whatnot. I would say that that's, that's good news. They raise the funds for the people. A Colorado company is fed up with the Colorado Rockies. The team is projected to lose 95 games this year. So the Colorado Brewing Company made an offer to the people of the state. Give us money so we can fix the problem. Here's more from NBC9. And maybe raising a billion dollars to buy a major league baseball team was, you know, a little harder than you previously thought. Denver Beer Company had launched this effort at the beginning of the season to raise enough money to make a serious bid to buy the Colorado Rockies. As of May 1st deadline, that grand total of the fundraising effort was $6,130. So just, you know, a little shy, $999,993,870 short of the actual goal. Anyway, they tried. Denver Beer Company has already vowed on their Facebook page to make an official offer to Rockies ownership with the amount raised. If they're unsuccessful, the brewers will contribute the proceeds to the Colorado Restaurant Foundation's Angel Relief Fund. That's going to help hospitality workers who have been impacted by the pandemic. So close, though. Uh, Oh, yeah, they were a percentage there. Nice. Nice work, everybody. No, I don't even think that's a percentage. I think yeah, ten thousand is small to, yeah. percentage. <laughs> I wonder what that. No, it's a billion dollars. Percentage. Yeah, a billion dollars. Yeah, so a billion dollars would be. Yeah, it would be a hundred thousand dollars. Would be no, a billion dollars would be a million dollars, one percent. So it's like point zero zero zero, not a billion dollars. <laughs> That's right. It's exactly okay. it. Okay. Um. Okay. So the Rockies are currently in last place in the National League. The lackluster performance has led to the resignation of Executive Vice President and General Manager Jeff Riddich, who is infamous for trading away star third baseman Nolan Arenado to St. Louis for pitcher Austin Gomber and four minor league prospects, and they gave the Cardinals $51 million. Which is too bad, because if they had kept the $51 million, they would have been, you know, 5% of the way to their billion. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my question. It's only May, and they're like, it's projected to lose 95 games. What if they have a massive turnaround? It's only May. Uh, Doesn't the season go to October? Like, what if what you, you raise a good point? Although, as someone who likes the call, who watches the Colorado Rockies, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not happening this year. Oof. Nope. I had hope for a while there, but nope. They're like the only right. team that still wears purple, and they, they squander it. Ugh. Given it What's a wrong with name. purple? No, that's my favorite color, and I want more teams in sports to use it. Oh. And they use it, but they use it on a horrible team. It's frustrating. Right. I got it. Are you okay? Are you okay with Jeff Goldblum? Yeah, why not? He, uh, he is my favorite person, celebrity. I idolize, I idolize Jeff Goldblum. He looks better in his 60s than I do at 24. 
This man has like insane fashion sense. He's a great actor. I love Jeff Goldblum. And he's really weird. And I respect him. He's definitely weird. My introduction to Jeff Goldblum, I think, was The Fly. Me too, actually. So well, Jurassic I, Park, but yeah. So I found that very scary. It's a spooky movie. It's gross. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. Okay. I, I mean, I think he's all right. I think he's kind of weird, but aside from that, right? Um, all right. Jeff Goldblum, he's been in a lot of incredible movies, though, so he can't be all terrible. Jeff Goldblum is a Hollywood legend. That's a typo. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Oh, I screwed it up on the one for Jeff. Uh, what if he's listening? What will he think of me? Oh. Jeff Goldblum is also Ryan's idol, mm-hmm. who is from Hollywood, and he's going viral for an act of kindness from the weekend this weekend. A class obsession with Jeff Goldblum in the U.S. helped make the social year much more fun and viral for its students. Fifth grade Bristol elementary school teacher Samantha Brown tells the Webster Kirkwood Times that she and a student named Max talked about how much they liked Jurassic Park. So that they turned a uh, turned it into a remote classroom discussion about Jeff Goldblum. Now, these kids are 10 and 11 years old, so they're kind of unfamiliar with Jeff Goldblum sort of in general, probably like dinosaurs. But according to Fox 2, Max introduced the class to Goldblum's quirky roles in many of his blockbuster movies, like The Fly, Independence Day, and Thor Ragnarok. So the students were introduced to uh, the classic Canadian body horror film, The Fly. Goldblum's roles started coming up in class with more and more. They discovered her students were fans. She used their obsession to make a virtual school look way more fun than it probably would have been. It's been hard for kids, man, studying from home. So she started building assignments themed after Jeff Goldblum because they loved him including math problems, creative writing, paintings, and virtual backgrounds for their meetings, saluting, guess who? Jeff Goldblum from Hollywood. Parents soon found out that the school's obsession with a 68-year-old actor, they crafted a letter to his publicist to let him know the class was working uh, with a frankly obsessing around him, and they waited. And sure enough, Jeff Goldblum responded. Hello, Tara. It's uh, Jeff Goldblum calling. Uh, That's the sweetest letter that you sent and what those kids are doing and what you're all doing there is so uh, adorable. I was very touched by it. And I just wanted to say hello, see if there's anything I could do. But if if, uh, if, if nothing else, just give, give a big hug and a kiss to all those kids and uh, tell them I, uh, I really appreciate what they're doing. Okay, much love to you. I'm in Australia now. I'm shooting that, uh, this next Thor movie. Uh, which is going very well, I think. And we just finished the, the Jurassic World movie, so I've been busy during this time, believe it or not. Anyway, uh, I won't pester you anymore. Thanks so much. Okay, much love. Okay, bye-bye. Very cool. I would freak out. I would never, like, I would listen to that every day before I get up. That would be my alarm, is hearing Jeff Goldblum say hi. Well, yeah, but he, in his natural character creep away, he also asked the teacher to kiss the children, which is not yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, but you get the intention there. Yes, I also cringed at that. And also the way he said <laughs> bye-bye, like he said, you could say normally bye-bye, but he went bye-bye, yeah. you know. Yeah. He's weird, so, okay? He is weird. Jeff Goldblum did post one of the students' assignments to his Instagram, which is really cool. It was a photo of him photoshopped onto a horse. He said he loved the work, the passion, the memes. Pretty cool stuff, though. I mean, if you're going to hear of kids doing things, that's pretty cool. I mean, to the teacher, I salute the, you know, the take it and run with it, anything to make it work. Mm-hmm. It's too bad the first kid wasn't a fan of somebody not Jeff Goldblum, though. Yeah, a little bit more, less weird. Now, but the weirdness is beautiful. The weirdness adds to it. I want to see what that math problem was. How many Jeff Goldblums does it take to, you know, do X and Y or whatever? Like, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. If Jeff Jeff Goldblum had four dinosaurs and three of them got hit by a meteor, how many dinosaurs does he have left? <laughs> exactly. Right. If three of the dinosaurs escaped Jurassic Park and so on. It's a good idea. I like the idea. They could use like Nicolas Cage or something. Now, that would be wild. 
Maybe that's next. Are you okay? Are you okay with porta potties? No, I, they're a necessary evil, but I avoid using them at all costs. Yep. Avoid. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think necessary evil is the perfect way to put it. Every time I go near one, I feel like I'm going to fall in it. Not because I, you know, just a, just a fear. I don't know. And they smell bad. And the other thing is they're always closed when you need them. Have you noticed that? Like you'll see one on the side of the road or you're at a park. You're like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. And then you find it. It's For me, it's always closed when I actually need it, which is maybe a good thing. My biggest fear is that they're going to tumble over while I'm Yeah, inside. that's always scary, yeah. right? Yeah. At a concert, always iffy. You know yeah. what? I, the roadside biffies, the ones that are basically like a nice shack with a hole in the ground, Oh, those are those ones are gross. I find those ones smelly and nasty in the summertime. Um, The maybe it's because I'm from a different generation. The the old school Biffy was nasty. And nowadays, I think they smell pretty good. I mean, I think they're way better than they used to be. So I don't mind them quite as much. So I don't know. Um, Maybe not so bad. Uh Talk about a Gettysburg address. <laughs> the best part about it is it's a Gettysburg address. <laughs> That's a typo. Yeah. Ryan. <laughs> what, you didn't? I thought I thought you would be able to read between the lines of the joke there. What, the two Ds in address? Ah, uh, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. First responders showed up to Gettysburg in Pennsylvania last week to save a man from a very uncivil predicament. That's very good. After a tree fell and trapped him inside a portable toilet. The New York Daily Record reports high winds knocked down a tree on Friday afternoon. It toppled over onto a porta potty at the Little Round Top Battlefield in Gettysburg National Military Park. A man had stopped off to relieve himself in the portable toilet a few minutes earlier. The tree ended up hitting his nearby van and the toilet while he was inside. He was screwed either way. It was meant to be. Oh, my God. Fire crews treated it like a car entrapment situation. According to Assistant Chief Joe Robinson of the Barlow Volunteer Fire Department, they used chainsaw to clear away the tree branches and then slice their way through the plastic portable toilet walls until they could pull the trap man out. He was taken to the hospital for evaluation. So it's not clear if he suffered any physical industries, but he's most definitely going to be scarred. <laughs> uh, so this has made him the first prisoner on a battlefield, on that battlefield in over 150 years and perhaps the first one ever captured by a tree inside a toilet. I don't know if he stayed dry or not. That was not part of the story. So, Ryan, this is I had to bring it up a little bit differently because of Ryan's Lunami incident of a few months ago where his toilet yeah. overflowed. I didn't want to have some um, post-traumatic toilet disorder for Ryan or post-traumatic flood disorder. Um, it was a nasty scene. So here's another reason to stay away from porta potties. People peeking in. This is a story from a few years ago from Action News 7. This really is a disgusting and despicable crime. Cops say their peeping Tom had a dirty mind and did it in an even dirtier place. This picture posted on Facebook yesterday is of a man neighbors believe to be the local peeping Tom. Only Action News cameras are here to show you the actual porta johns where cops say he placed his camera through a cutout hole. You should be able to go into a bathroom and not expect that you're going to be, a, you know, accosted or abused like that. Still stunned are the parents who live near Candy Cane Park off Collegewood Street. The outhouse outlaw allegedly victimized three different ladies, and the guy was busted by several witnesses. He then took off on foot just after 7 p.m. last night. Well, that's weird. That is not not okay all of that all of what we just talked about was not okay the man being trapped what just happened there this is why porta potties you should just hold it yeah well here's my question about the man being trapped it was windy enough to knock over a tree but he yeah. still mm-hmm. decided to use the porta potty <laughs> i would not make that decision if it That's was a good point if it was 
tree knocking over Windy out. Even- yeah, but you don't know. Like, he could have been an urgent scenario. Yeah, that's true. Right? That's true. There could be, um, there could have been some, there could have been some urgency or some, you know, colon issues, irritable things happening. You never know. That's true. Poor fella. That's true. Cut the guy some slack. All right. Um, which, by the way, what a weird fetish. Like, oh, of all yeah. the things to peep in on, like. And you'd be ugh. sitting in there. You'd be constantly smelling a porta potty. Like, ugh. I don't know. Awful. It's all weird. Cameras and porta cameras and toilets are just weird anyway. Cameras in a porta potty is the weirder. Okay, let's just get the next clip here out completely out of context to get started. I'm trying to do uh, closer to the herd. Right. But I got okay. it messed up. I got the picking hand. But... Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is easy. Just move up one position there. There you go. Try that. actually pretty good are you okay <laughs> are you okay with bubbles yeah absolutely i mean you, you just heard of what an amazing cover of closer to the heart courtesy of trailer park boys <laughs> residents in abbotsford woke up to a whole lot of bubbles not bubbles from trailer park boys literal bubbles I got this one super last one. Yeah, I got this one super late in the script. Yeah. Okay. According to the CBC, massive piles of foam were spotted floating on a local creek. But why? Why all the bubbles? Why the literal bubbles? Officials with the province's Ministry of Environment said they, along with the City of Abbotsford and Environment Canada, are monitoring the situation, but confirmed the substances uh, causing all the foam is Tide powdered detergent. Oh. In the well, in the creek. Well, hey, sometimes people got to clean their clothes, yeah. I guess. Residents noticed white powder on some rooftops, which may explain the issues, except for the, how did it get to the rooftops. Apparently, you can use laundry detergent to prevent moss growing on your roofs. That's how it gets there. But that's an unproven technique, and also it seems to be like a really dumb idea. Um, yeah, literal has one Unless, of course, you were throwing away your tide, and maybe that's what you meant, Ryan, that you were literally ringer or oh, with your Oh, that's it. You you read my mind. Absolutely. Read my mind, Shane. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. You that's have now peeked for. into my genius. <laughs> J-E-N-I-O-O-S. Genius. Yep. This is the Shift Podcast. I remember when I was a kid, we'd be at some Christmas party or some softball team party. And for me, it was the chicken dance. Now, that probably dates me a little bit. But it was the chicken dance where the parents would say, call all the kids and be like, do that thing you do. And there you would be in the living room in front of the fireplace and all of the drunk parents with their cigarettes in their hands. And you'd have to do the chicken dance. And they would get all the kids together. If it was something that you did at school, that's what they would do. They'd be like, come on, do that thing you do. And, uh, and you'd feel nervous. And you'd do it. Then it'd be the same responses. Oh, good job, Billy. Right? Anyway, parents have this way of making kids do things because they're parents. One of the biggest ironic things about all that in the social media era is what happens if the kid doesn't want their picture taken or their video put online and mom really wants to share it on her Facebook? Whose decision is that? Jesse Miller, Mediated Reality, joins us here on The Shift to talk about digital consent. Jesse, this is a piece of our conversation from a couple of weeks ago where we finished off 
the, with the notion of digital consent as a thing that we absolutely don't respect and probably need to respect. How are you, buddy? I'm very good. I'm very good. I like the chicken dance uh, analogy. It's a very good chicken. way of leading into the pressures of being a child in front of parents who are imbibing too much alcohol. <laughs> yeah. How is your chicken dance? Pretty good? Or Listen, I haven't been to a wedding in a very long time, but I think that's the only time I ever really saw the chicken dance roll out. <laughs> <laughs> you got to add the other ones, the Macarena and then Macarena. Uh, Gangnam Style. I think there's an evolution to these awkward dances that get uh, kind of... Um, celebrated at certain moments of childhood but uh yeah there's a lot of kids out there these days who have the the gangnam style and chicken uh, 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 kind of leading the path more so than the chicken dance i'm thinking i suppose yeah that's probably true we're dating ourselves here big fella um so what parents say let me take your picture parents post it online don't ask the kids there's i don't know what age threshold you pick where kids start to care but as younger folks get on social media, it seems to be younger and younger. It does seem to matter. What is digital consent? Well, as an internet educator, I've done a lot of work in the past 15 years talking to parents and sometimes talking them off the ledge of their fears of you know, predators online and all the worst things that kids are doing online. And one of the things that kind of hit me about five years ago was that there was this active dialogue from kids in my sessions kind of highlighting that they didn't have the tools to communicate to trusted, loved individuals about how they didn't want to be shared online. So I worked with a group of kids and kind of highlighted, you know, what parents were doing with tech. So they'd say things like my parents text and drive despite knowing the law, or my parents sound hypocritical because they say, put the phone down at the table and, uh, you know, you turn around a couple minutes later and, and parents are scrolling through emails or Facebook messages or whatever it be. But the digital consent piece came up because in schools, kids aren't allowed to document other people. And within that, there's, a, there's, a, there's almost a, a student code of conduct in the sense that you won't document your peers, you won't be filming your teacher. And as a guest in schools, like I've been to, I've been to a lot of schools, I know that as a guest in the building, I'm not allowed to film or videotape any child without their consent, which is, to be fair, pretty easy to get, um, or the school's consent or any parent guardian consent. I have these tiers. And in that, you'd also have these high school principals or middle school principals who would say, every holiday event we have, we tell the parents, no phones, don't film. And then you look over and there's one holding up their iPad, filming the children singing a holiday carol or whatever it be. So digital consent evolved as a dialogue to empower youth to know that they can speak up and say, I don't want to be filmed. I, I don't want to be shared on your social media. And more so, we actually saw kids highlighting that it wasn't their peers who were actively disrespecting them. It was, it was the adults in their lives. And they didn't have the resources to know how to speak up when they felt uncomfortable as opposed to just screaming, no, I don't want to be photographed and then you have some adult telling them no don't worry about it you look great thing is into your intro i can remember being a kid not feeling comfortable in my own skin right like you're going through puberty you're going through all the things you don't feel great and you'd have a parent say oh you don't worry everybody's hair looks silly or don't worry everybody's got bad skin or whatever it is but again there was a total difference in having the kodak 24 roll that would go off to the pharmacy and come back a couple of weeks later with the end result right even then there was kind of a cringe moment when you flip through the photographs with parents when it did come back so now we have kids who really they don't understand the concept of do you mind if i take a picture of you do you mind if i film this situation um are you okay if i post this online because they're not they're not prefaced with that question from adults in their lives thing is, is that when we hear these issues with kids in tech, somebody always kind of comes together and goes, what empowers these children just to film these things or to send these photographs? And usually it's not an empowerment. It's a lack of education. Adults do that all the time. We do it all the time when we see something happen. Maybe it's the mentality or the idea that, oh man, I'm going to document this and it's going to go viral, man. <laughs> but we see it with fights in the street we just read a piece here on the shift last week about a fight in an airport right at the gate and there were people just sitting there with their phones open and not doing anything about the people who are um fighting 
Yeah. And well, just Shane, to that point that we got to remember that public is a very flexible word, right? Like right. you filming at the airport is entirely different than filming inside of a school. Right. It, it, yeah. And again, the rules actually would apply equally there. Right. But if filming on the street, like that's where we are allowed to. Yeah. And I'm not sure that if an airport itself qualifies as public space, uh, like it would, uh, outside in public because it is somebody's property. Right. Um, but in, that doesn't matter uh, to your point, you are correct. But in that we often just film things to document that we have this mentality of, I'm just going to get this down. And so I imagine if a fight breaks out at school, somebody breaking out their phone to record it out of the habit of, Oh, I got to record this. And that thought process of, wait a second, this is not where I'm supposed to be recording. At the same time, now you have evidence to maybe find out who the bad person was. So isn't it a crossroads? Oh, very much so. And, and, and to that point, like there's always a high school administrator who is very happy that 50 kids filmed the fight because you've got 50 different vantage points compared to 40 years ago when you just had to kind of figure out who was there and see if you can get a statement from somebody about who was involved. Right. And the thing of it is, is that there is, uh, I mean, there's two, there's two paths here. One, there is the financial, like if we had our children um, filming everything and, and taking pictures of everything. And you got a monthly bill for how your child used their phone in the sense of the peripheral, not just the data and the, the phone calls, but you find out that 10 cents for every selfie that they took was now being charged to your credit card. There'd be a very different approach to how we use these technologies. And the biggest lift there is that you're not spending, you know, six bucks for a roll of film and then $15 to get it developed and, you know, paying going on Sunday to get doubles for free. Um, the, the cost of, of, capturing the moment has obviously gone to a negligible as long as you have the technology. What, what's in there though is we don't have a developed ethos of how to understand the time and place when to film. Everybody is quite privileged in that regard of believing they have the right to film or photograph anything. And that also goes to parents. Parents believe they have a right to film their children and distribute their kids online. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of, you know, the fear of predators, you know, for parents, the idea that they commodify their children, they put their children online for this idea of affirmation of likes and showing off. I mean, there's a whole group of kids out there who have actively been documented for their parents' own benefit of just basically highlighting all the things the family is doing. And I think every listener knows that one person who's got that social media channel that's dedicated to how great their life is, as opposed to the reality of we're all struggling in one way or the other. So in that, these kids, you know, there's going to be a different generation of kids that come forward highlighting how they might want to separate themselves away from certain aspects of active sharing just because they were subject to it so much as kids. How do we do that, though? I mean, like most things I'm learning as I get older, most things in life are not a behavioral problem. They're not a kid problem. They're not a school problem. Most things are not a teacher problem. Most things are not a policing problem. Most things in life are our parenting problems. And how in the world do we get in front of that? Well, partially, I would think one thing that we have to keep in mind here is that parents need to recognize that we, we have this ability to capture these moments, but we don't necessarily have the ability to understand how to participate in the moments. So every birthday party, every event, you always see the cameras out because we want to really kind of capture it, but we don't really want to embrace what's happening. We, we want to have somebody, you know, basically collect it so we can relive it, which is quite interesting in, in my eyes, because I do appreciate the moment and I actually realize that the more I pay attention to the moment, I, the more I can actually uh, retain from it. But realistically here for parents, I mean, the thing is, is that you do have to ask yourself, at what point are you sharing your children via a company that potentially makes money off of that. And so within that, you know, we hear people say, well, I, my Facebook account got deleted and I can't believe I lost all of my photographs. Okay, well, you gave them away. You you gave a company the ability to host your information and to keep it and then to not only monetize it, but to allow you this kind of comfort zone. So within that, partially, I mean, parenting needs to really kind of re, have a reapproach to how we, we share our children online. 
But that also said, you know, we do need people, unfortunately, learning from experience that maybe at the end of the day, when you are capturing information or you are trying to put it all into one one space, that the more that we diversify how we utilize our, our, our social medias and our digital technologies to capture our lives, the better we can be at actually retaining it. Because let's go, go back here in British Columbia, early 2000s, we had massive forest fires across the Okanagan. That was like the last time we heard people say, I'm going into the house just to get the family photo albums and getting out right now. People, you know, don't think about it that way. Cause as long as they have their phone, they have things. Right. But once people get locked out of their accounts or they lose that iCloud, you know, they lose a lot of their family histories. So in that, the more that you go through your phone and you kind of choose some photographs to print off, you know, you go through as a family, you show that there's a value to capture these moments, then you can potentially apply healthy dialogue and say, oh, this is a great photograph. Maybe we should share this online. Maybe this would be a great one to print off and have in the family home beyond the cloud, right? And in that, like as much as there are those cringe factors, I mean, I recently helped my, my family move. There was a lot of really good time well spent flipping through those old family albums as much as the cringe factor was there. And to be fair, my kids, you know, there was a, a humanizing piece of that while they flipped through and looked at photos of me as a young person, especially in that same age bracket. So in that, yeah, it's easy to go through our camera rolls and just kind of go left, right and see which ones we want. But there is still a, a, a very unique humanizing uh, experience to have the tactile printed photograph. You brought up a lot there. Um, number one, we also assume that the cloud's going to be there forever and nothing will ever go wrong there. Yes, there are archives and all those things, but they also have millions and millions of users. So it's not like anybody's going to, if you ever feel like you've deleted something that you didn't want to delete, like a photo, I have one photo that I can't find for the life of me. And, um, and I have a server because of my business. I have a server in the house, a raid server. So I've got duplicates everywhere. And yet what happens if that gets all scrambled for whatever reason? And then you're trying to get through to customer service to find your account in amongst millions of others. I mean, it is possible, highly unlikely, but it is possible. And so not only that, you know, we need to take responsibility for these things. And we often sign up for these accounts and these, these different programs at four bucks a month or whatever it is. And we've got two or three of them and it's never ending because you're never going to be able to walk away from all of the things that are attached to it. It happens to anybody who's ever had, you know, their work email exchange and then all of a sudden they leave that job and their default setting on their address book was work. Yeah. And now it's gone. Right. So, I mean, we've been through this process more and more. Um, but you did bring up something very, very, very important there. And I'd like to go back to this. And I don't know if you realize you did it. I think you do. Um, but you said this. We take a video to archive and relive the moment later. But do we not know how to live in the moment? And that is a very, very, very grassroots, deep look at social media because it is possible. And what you just brought me to, Jesse, it is very possible that we use these moments and we call it social media and we call it posting online and sharing as a feel good. It's possible. We don't know how to actually live in these moments anymore. Go to a concert. How many phones did you, well, old world, and when we went to concerts, how many phones did you see up in the air recording it? and people looking at their phones. So they're paid to be at the show, and they're watching it on a five-inch screen instead of just stopping and being completely present to what's going on. I mean, it is possible, Jesse, that what you've just hit here, to me anyway, is that all of this conversation about social media has more to do with our inability to be present. Yeah. I mean, I think I purposely kind of laid that path in the sense that I do miss going to concerts in some ways right now. I miss those things that we we normalize and, and kind of look back on fondly. And to be fair, I mean, when I see that, um, you know, something that's exciting is happening and everybody's capturing something, I tend to actually just be the person who steps back and, and enjoys the moment. But I do that also partially because I've been in a number of unique situations and privileged situations in my life where I've had the ability to see something happening. And I think what's important here is that we, we are so quick to malign how kids use these technologies, but we forget that we have actually set the leaderboard for them. They've watched us, you know, take out our phones for every life event, for every moment where we want to capture something. And, and in that, like, you know, you hear these stories about kids getting themselves into trouble and, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, how in the world could they they film this or why would they, and whether it was a fight or an intimate event or whatever it be, you know, we're not giving them the context of how to 
look at something in a, in a full circle way because we are very myopic in the way that we would look through this five inch screen and 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 you know still we paid a hundred bucks to get into the stadium, but at the same time for kids you know they are part of a culture of sharing and so within that culture of sharing there is that ingrained go grab your phone get it out there share it with the world and they have watched us do that you remember these technologies are less than 20 years old in the sense of the everyday individual having them in their hand so if you have a child who's 15 they've grown their entire life essentially watching people share the moments as opposed to be in the moment. So partially there is a, an ethical approach to talking more about digital consent. And again, maybe the moments have to slow down where you ask that question, Hey, I'm about to film this. Hey, do you mind if I take a picture of everybody here together? Do you mind if I tag you in this photo? And within that, it's easier these days to tag everybody than it is to even ask for consent. But then it's almost easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to, um, you know, go down the path of, you know, I just took this picture. People look great in it. You look a little bit awkward. Do you mind if I post it? I mean, it's one of those things where some people will embrace it. Other people will shy away. But then do you want to be the person who's ruining the moment because you didn't want that photo being distributed? Those who have something to lose are a little bit more adept at navigating that especially if they're a noteworthy celebrity, professional sports player, things like that. But the everyday individual, um, most people aren't caring about it at all. That's where you make that awkward edit where it looks like you're standing next to somebody, but they're kind of cut out and you only see their shoulder. I mean, cut them out of the picture at that point. If they don't want to be in the picture, I mean, that's cool. Like the fading uh, back just, to the future photograph. That's right. Exactly <laughs> what it is. What a great throwback that that is right there. It is curious to see. Um, how sharing is important. And frankly, I admire the younger generations because their sense of community is so strong. Uh, when I look at hockey players today and my son's hockey generation, they are communicating, if they play on teams that are blended for like all-star teams or whatever, from all over the province, all over Western Canada, guys they meet at camps, they keep in touch with these people. And they're still in touch with these people from day to day, right? And not just even in their birth year, you know, above and below. So there is a lot for us to learn from all of this. Uh, maybe it's not the kids' problem so much as it is the parents' problem um, to look at. You know, and, and I'm glad you kind of brought it to sports because part of this conversation evolved for me. Uh, I did a lot of work with BC kids involved in high-level sports, talking about distraction factors involving technology. You know, why is it you would never have a phone on the ice, but you have it in the classroom? You know, you'd never text in front of coach, but you'll text in front of a teacher. These, these kind of questions. And one of the byproducts of asking these kind of questions to youth is that you do get an end result that sometimes takes you down an entirely different path. And the most notable would be, yeah, it's great that my parents are in the crowd, but they didn't really notice anything going on because they were too busy on their phones the entire time, right? So again, you know, they're quick to film, they're quick to capture the moment, but for even practices and things like that, kids pick up when their parents are disengaged. And so, you know, pre-COVID when you were allowed to kind of be in the building, watching your kids play a game or even practice, you know, kids were very, very aware that parents were disengaged. So valid point, their community is great. We're the ones who are struggling with this. Yeah. And I, as a guy who just went through his Instagram and cleaned off a bunch of old stuff that was no longer relevant, I can tell you that a photo from downtown Vancouver takes me back to that entire weekend and the feeling of that weekend. And I, that we're probably overthinking this anyway. Sometimes that one photo of the, you know, the trip up the gondola on the mountain or whatever it is that you were doing uh, by Niagara Falls takes you right back to the whole trip anyway. Yeah. So um, we don't need to document every step along the way. Uh, that's for sure. Jesse Miller, mediated reality. Digital consent is a thing that we as adults definitely need to look at because it's very possible that we've created this monster. Thank you, sir. Thank you, as always. It's the Shift Podcast. All right, it's time for us here on the Shift with Brendan Kelly, Ryan O'Donnell, and me, Shane Hewitt, to welcome in Disco Andy. Nice. Andy Barrar, HandyAndyMedia.com, DIY technology and more. Andy, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Isn't that Italian? What's it? The, the, it's like disco music from Ital uh, Italy back in the 80s. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a certain genre. That's it. I, that, you guys know all my hits, man. You know my style. Mm -hmm. We got eyes on you, man. We know what you're like in Vegas. What was that song, <laughs> Brendan, just to help him out? That was actually Donna Summer, I Feel Love. Oh, okay. Yeah. Disco Italo. That is the genre. It's called Disco Italo. If you, oh, you'd like if you, mo Mojo. Yeah. Lady. Lady. 
Hear me tonight. I'm not doing it justice. It's a great song, though. Um, how are you? How are things? How's, how's it going in DIY land, Andy Barrar? DIY land's going good. Uh, Mother's Day is coming up. So I thought, you know, last year my mom asked me to build her something. And she's never asked me for anything. So I was like, you know what? This must be important for her. What, what she really wants is she's retired now. So she's on her pension. She's got a lot of time. And she's really into gardening like I am. And But what she wants, because she's getting older, it's hard for her to bend down to, to you know work on a traditional garden. She wants it raised. So it's like at your standing height level. So you don't have to bend down. You can do all your gardening. So that essentially is like these huge planter boxes is what she wanted made. And Shane, you know, the price of lumber is crazy right now. So I didn't know oh, if I was going to be able to pull this off or not. But thankfully, last year, uh, during the pandemic, when it started, I just got a whole bunch of um, one of those uh, pallets, pallet wood. I bought mm -hmm. something called a skid buster, which breaks those pallets. And I just spent like weekends just breaking wood, putting it all together, making a nice little, you know, pile of, of lumber. And this weekend, I took it all out. And sure enough, I was able to build these planter boxes with just reclaimed wood. And my mom loves it. Tomorrow, I got to pick up some soil. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, happy Mother's Day, you know, like from from a pallet to a garden bed, you know, like that's 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 a good Mother's Day present. If you ask me, you uh, what are you sucking up about? It must be something. Uh, you know, honestly, not. I, I, I just like making things. And I finally, like, here's something I knew that she would enjoy. And let's put it this way. I'm obviously going to eat a lot of the stuff that she grows in that garden of hers. So I, I guess I do get to a, a little bit of advantage uh, once it's up and running. Nice. Uh, good tip, though, for, for that. And if you go to handyandymedia.com, and Andy Barrar uh, on the Twitter, you can see some of the projects because you do make videos of the things that you build and so on and so forth. <laughs> Pardon me. Oh, my God. That snuck out of nowhere. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't have oh, COVID. Bless you. It happens to me, too. Actually, <laughs> before we went on, I was sneezing. I was like, oh, I hope I don't sneeze while we're while I'm on air. Um, but, yeah, you can go to my website. I actually did film. See, Shane, I'm, I'm trying to get into the habit of I don't want to do anything unless I film it because – um, you know, it, it, it's good content and somebody might get inspired to, to try something similar. But the funny thing is, Shane, is when I'm making this stuff, I don't really know what I'm doing because I don't even know how much lumber I have. So I'm just kind of like figuring things out. But thankfully, I'm recording everything. So I do have a bunch of footage. And once that's up and running, uh, I'll let everybody know. And you can see how you, too, can create a planter box from a skid palette that you can get for free. And you do use the um, the kiln baked uh, wood that's been heated and and taken care of, so the chemicals are gone. For yeah, the, yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah, like we were talking about before. If you do get these pallets, they have a little stamp on them, and you want—I think it's called HT on it, heat treated. So basically, yeah. they they just put it and they just cook these pallets so that any kind of like bugs or anything just get you know disintegrated, and and it's safe to use for for creating vegetable gardens. Now, Ryan O'Donnell is here, too, and he is all in on this loot box stuff in the video games. Ryan, why don't you help us understand what your story is? What is the loot box, and, and are you buying them? Yes. <laughs> loot boxes oh, are basically good, just... Good story. Yeah, Thank you. Well, only once a year. So let me explain briefly what a loot box is in my experience. So a loot box is basically a slot machine in a video game. The game goes, give us $5 in real money. And we will give you a box worth $10, potentially maybe only five. And it'll open it up and you'll either get something great or something not great. My experience is in the game I play the most, which is World of Tanks. And every year at Christmas, they put out ridiculous loot boxes. And uh, it's basically you get, you pay money and you can get really, really rare tanks a boatload of gold, which is the premium currency, you know, premium time. And, you know, I only, I've been playing this game for years, so I don't mind spending money on it because I, I enjoy playing it. But uh, it, it, I love it. I get totally addicted to it. I'll only buy 30 boxes. And then three days later, I end up buying 10 more because I'm like, oh, I didn't get the thing I wanted. Maybe this time. 
Well, this is the big issue, Shane, is now people are wondering, you know, these loot boxes have all the characteristics of gambling, you know, just like Ryan said, when you buy these loot boxes, first of all, you don't know what you're getting. Second of all, once you get it, I don't know what it is in your game, Ryan, but they have all these bells and whistles, just like a slot machine does, right? So you get that instant dopamine hit. And and Shane, what's happening is different games. uh, I know FIFA... Uh, Electronic Arts, which is based out here in uh, Vancouver, they they create one of the most popular soccer games in the world, and they create these loot boxes where your player can just become a little bit faster, or you can unlock a certain player. And people are legitimately addicted to these loot boxes, spending all of their hard-earned money on a game they already bought, and they're buying other stuff on there, and these gaming companies are making a killing on these loot boxes. So the big question is, is this really gambling and should it be regulated? Well, I would say it is, isn't it? If it's a game of chance, seems to me to be. It's kind it of is like absolutely gambling. From someone it, who does it at least once a year, 100% it is gambling. And I'm well aware of that. Now, now which how is much why did I the, should never go in a casino. <laughs> well, how much did the game cost when you first bought it, Ryan? Well, it's a free-to-play game, right? So that's how they make the money is the premium stuff. So you can play the game for free if you want, but if you want to do well, you end up paying money. So you yes. can buy a box, and how they do it, it's smart, is you pay, let's say, $5 for three boxes. In each of those boxes, you're guaranteed to get a certain amount of one thing. You're always going to get at least two things, but the box could contain more. And this is an interesting thing for me. I bought three boxes for the first time back in 2017. Just three. That's all I wanted to spend. Because all I wanted was this one tank. It is a tank that had eluded me for five years of playing the game. On my second box, 1% chance of opening, I got the tank. Uh-oh. And what did I end up doing? I ended up buying more because I was so yeah, excited about my luck. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so Shane, what's interesting is... You don't have to buy to get these, like like Ryan said, these tanks. However, you got to grind it out. And what they call it is grind currency, where you're just playing like a very boring part of this game over and over and over again, just to try to get enough like internal, like, you know, currency to, to buy these loot boxes. But a lot of people are like, uh, I'll just throw $5 here. I'll throw another five here. Next thing you know, you're hooked. And people who are have an addictive personality they get really, really tied into these loot boxes. And, you know, this is the future of video games. It's not just paying that one price. You're basically getting sucked into this ecosystem where they're just going to, you know, really psychologically trick you into paying more and more inside these games. They, they really figured it out on how to get players hooked on these games and, more importantly, get them to keep spending on the game after they purchased it. Wow. Um, absolutely crazy. This whole subscribe after you've paid for it thing is, um, is, is quite remarkable. Um, the subscription model that has really taken off around the world. Okay. So, uh, YouTube has just started with their premium, you know, music subscriptions and all those kinds of things without commercials, but there's still some things about the YouTube music that has users, you know, upset. So th- there are all kinds of subscription models like that. YouTube has also come into the news lately, too, with uh, regulations and everything else on content out of the Canadian government. What's that about? Yeah, so uh, this is something I'm sure you're really familiar with, Shane, is Canada has always had within their broadcasting rights, you know, forcing companies to play certain amounts of Canadian content. And that's always been on the radio. It's been on television. And it's really to to create, you know, and, and give that incentive to create Canadian content. What they're trying to do now is the government's trying to update the Broadcasting Act and they want to include YouTube as well. So uh, uh, for for the longest time, they've basically said any kind of user-generated content doesn't count. But now because of the way we consume content, because we're consuming content that's not from your traditional TV show or from a broadcaster, they're trying to include that. And that's going to really blur the lines because now you got the CRTC looking at the content that we create because that's it is, I guess, Canadian content, but we're creating it. But what they're trying to say, the government, is they want to push YouTube to inside their algorithm to push more Canadian content 
to Canadians to, in the hopes of us creating more Canadian content. But it gets really, really blurry when you talk about user-generated content on YouTube. But that's where they're trying to head. That would mean that Canadians would see more Canadians. And I, I this has always been that crossroads of uh, when it comes to CanCon and music, right? Uh, Canadian radio stations are playing 35 40% Canadian music, basically, because the government says they have to. And but, so a bunch but, of songs at times make the radio that probably shouldn't be on the radio. Now, recently, some of those songs have gotten better, but Canadian artists still take their grants and go shop to Canadian producers who are down in L.A. Yeah. and spend the money not in Canada anyway. So the system is definitely broken, and it would be nice to see protect Canadian content. I would love it if we saw more Canadian content. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it should be force-fed to anybody. Yeah, and now it could be Canadian content on TikTok, Canadian content on YouTube. See, that's where they're trying to head, but it, it gets a little blurry because I don't know if we really want the CRTC to be regulating the kind of content that people create on the internet. And I, I can see what they're trying to do, but to implement this and to really figure it out, I don't know, they're just the government and the internet together, those two words don't really sound like it's a, a, a good marriage, if you ask me. Yeah, I get that. You get companies like Netflix that have ridden the backs of broadband providers, though, for years to make profit. Yeah, the way that I was described to me is, if you think about it this way, say if you're delivering a packages, say you're a courier company, it's Andy Barrar's Courier, and you have a truck, and you deliver, you're paying for fuel, you're paying for the driver, you're paying for everything else. Well, Netflix comes along because they know where you're going, and they put a package on your bumper, and they don't pay for it. Yeah. That's kind of what goes on, right? And so at what point does Netflix have to pay? And a lot of those companies don't even pay their share of GST because they don't charge it. I think it would be really great if there was a if they made YouTube have a Canada button, right? If you had a Canada button. And then you basically, if you want to see the top trending things in Canada, you just hit the button and your feed is bloop. Here's all the top Canadians. That, to me, seems like a reasonable solution. But then again, I don't work for them. But so it goes, Andy. Thanks for bringing it in front of us. Uh, HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy Barrar, you can follow him on the Twitter and uh, get all the videos that he puts together from his planters. And maybe you should video your mom's reaction. Oh, I already saw her today. She was very, yeah. She's like, this is exactly what I wanted. This is so perfect. I'm like, yes. That's so good. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.